Welcome to Metro Health's Prescription for Hope. I'm John Campanelli. The coronavirus crisis is more than four months old, and it looks like we may, unfortunately, still have a ways to go. Still, it's a good time to look back and take stock of what we did right, what we might regret, and the surprising number of silver linings that have appeared since March. And there is no better way to do that looking back than to sit down in the studio with Metro Health's visionary and transformative leader, this guy. Hi, I'm Akron Boutros, President and CEO of the Metro Health System. And how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. How were you doing four months ago? Good. Yeah, no, everything is good. It's been uh, interesting um, uh, times and for our community, for our country. Uh, but uh, I'm an eternal optimist. I think everything will come out better in that. You know, even in those early March, mid-March times when things were really unsettling, you seemed really calm. Well, I don't think anybody wants me to run around like a chicken without a head. I think what people are looking for is uh, competence, understanding, and clarity. And uh, you can't do that if you are completely encased in the uncertainty of the the moment. You, You have to figure out what you know, what you don't know, and what is the best course of action based on these, um, uh, on the knowledge that you have. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I've been through multitude of crises um, throughout my uh, adult life and some during my uh, childhood. So I've learned to keep the noise out and focus on things that will improve the situation. You were in New York City for 9-11? I was instant commander for um, Long Island Hospitals on 9-11. And 9-11 um, told me a great deal. It told me a great deal about our nation. It told me a great deal about how teamwork um, uh, makes a difference. It, it taught me about focus. It also taught me about agility. By the time that within about six hours we had uh, emptied a third of the hospital beds on Long Island. By the time we finished, we're so busy doing doing that, but that by the time we looked up, we knew there was no body coming to Long Island. We, we knew that there were not that many survivors. So you had to pick your head up, uh, and I've learned to always pick my head up and just see what's going on, let the information come in so we can take a course correction. So I'd like to start with looking back on, on COVID. Um, how do you think we did and how do you think our region did? Yes, yeah, so I, I don't think you can say you're looking back on COVID. You can look at back at the start the of initial, COVID. The yeah. initial uh, days and months of uh, COVID. Yeah, so so I think it, it is what what is what people need to recognize is this is the most learning about any specific issue that the human race has done in its entirety, in our entire history. 
you know more about COVID-19 and coronavirus than you know about the common cold or the flu. You know more about that than diabetes. We, as healthcare providers and, and medical professionals, learned so quickly that the, the learning curve was so steep. We've learned a great deal and, and worked really hard to uh, incorporate the learnings into uh, our actions. But you also have to remember there have been a lot of crazy false information. It doesn't pass from person to person. Non-steroidals will kill you. You can use um, uh, hydroxychloroquine as the panacea for uh, everything. Uh, it gets uh, uh, the uh, coronavirus lives on uh, uh, objects and is passed, is transmitted from inanimate objects to human beings. These are all the things that people supposed. And, and sometimes maybe hoped for or were worried about, but aren't true. So there's been a lot of misinformation uh, out there, and we've been trying to focus on what is scientifically prudent. And, um, and, and this virus also hasn't behaved like typical coronaviruses uh, do. So you also asked me, how did we do? How did we do? We did. So, so for... Ohio did really well. Uh, I think um, you were here with us the first day that the governor had the coronavirus uh, briefing, and it was at Metro Health. And we discussed what needed to happen in order for us as a community to um, reduce the number of the spread of the infection. So from that standpoint, we did a really amazing job. I think what what history is going to say is that how did we balance this out with the healthcare needs of those who are chronically ill? It's very hard to do this because every human life is is important and there's nobody deserves to live um, any more than anyone else. But if you think about uh, that 71% of the people who died from coronavirus live in a nursing home in Ohio, and that it's a finite population of individuals, 82,000 of them, that's it. We're 11.2 million, and there are only 82,000 people who live in a nursing home. So we didn't do as good a job as protecting uh, these vulnerable populations. And they didn't, they got it from us. They got it from healthcare providers. They got it from the people who worked there. So I think there's a really important lesson here when the vaccine comes out. So 17 and 18 and 13 year olds and 10 year olds are probably going to be the last person we need to vaccinate. We're going to need to vaccinate the older patients first. If it's a safe vaccine, that's who we we need to um, uh, provide the vaccine for. We have to provide vaccine for people who live in congregate living facilities other than nursing homes. It's people with with disabilities, people in prisons, uh, people in homeless shelters, all of these different facilities where there's high density and not as much uh, protection. As... 
have you started talking about distributing vaccines? I know there's optimistic news about the development of it. I started talking about uh, distribution of vaccines three months ago. <laughs> so Good. literally in April, I began having this discussion and telling both the Ohio Hospital Association, the Cuyahoga County Board of Health, and anyone else who listens, the governor's office, that we must figure out the distribution mechanism. So we need to identify the population and be able to get it in the hands of the people who are going to be able to vaccinate uh, individuals on a priority level. It doesn't matter who it is. When did you know that the initial surge wasn't going to be as bad as it was? I was doubt, you know, I was doubtful from the very first day when people said there's going to be 10,000 infections, diagnosed infections a day in Cuyahoga County. It, it, it just seemed preposterous. This wasn't measles, which, which had an R naught of 15 or 16, where one person infected 15 people. We're talking about two to three. And we're talking about um, easily protecting ourselves. Like right now, you and I are six feet apart. We're not wearing masks because we're over six feet apart. The possibility that you or I are going to give each other coronavirus is high, it's very, very small. So, so there was ways, we knew we could protect ourselves from influenza. We knew how to protect ourselves from the common cold. We just hadn't done it as a nation. So, so saying is that this is a really dreaded disease and we're going to take these actions to protect ourselves. From the very beginning, I thought it was off. When I began running the numbers after about three weeks, I started coming out with numbers in the 2000s. And, and I thought, okay, must be something wrong with our methodology. There's something wrong with our how we're thinking about this. Well, it turns out the people who said it was 10,000 um, patients a day were business development people who didn't understand epidemiology. It was analytics-type individuals who don't understand anything about how disease gets spread. So you were running your own models at home on your on your home computer. I mean, it, it sounds like you were really. I still run them today. Okay. I take a, a, about an hour a day, and I update all the models. We now have two models, actually three. Uh, one, the original model that we utilized. The second model has opening, gradual opening of Ohio. Uh, and both of these were built on uh, the uh, the notion of uh, uh, the premise of R not. How many people are you spreading it to? The last model, in which we have not published yet, but it seems to be the most precise of them all, is built on um, date of symptom. Do you have any regrets uh, from the early days of this? Oh, I, you know, um, I, I would say to you, no major mistakes, but lots of regrets that we could have done better. Lessons that, that we've learned uh, to do that. We didn't do universal masking until much later. And, you know, some people thought it was because we didn't have enough masks. We honestly didn't 
what we were told is that if, they, that you, if you were not symptomatic, if you did not have a fever, if you were not coughing, that the risk of infection was very, very low. So we, we didn't uh, pursue that as early as possible. We pursued it um, a week before anybody said we should do it. Um, we, we closed down our elective surgery a few days before anybody said we should do it. So we did a lot of things proactively, and I wish some of them I would have even done earlier. What, do you, what did you learn that you didn't know about healthcare in America in the past three or four months? It can change a lot faster than anyone has ever said, than I, I ever thought it would um, uh, change. Um, it, it is, we are the problems. Healthcare providers are the problems. We are used to uncomfortable in the ways we do things. And um, we, um, push against change. It's it's our own implicit bias, and and we should talk about racism and implicit bias and all of that. But but we have a very strong implicit bias against change in in, in medicine and in healthcare. It is it is relentless, and and it's hard to uh, uh, overcome. But when push comes to shove. We went from 0.5% of our outpatient visits being delivered through telemedicine to close to 90% in a couple of weeks. That's pretty extraordinary. So on the heels of that, what, Obviously, telehealth is the most obvious example, but in what ways does American healthcare change because of coronavirus? I think we're going to need to, fo- I think we will focus a lot more on keeping people healthy and well instead of treating illness. And you know, I've spoken about that for a while. But the best protection against getting coronavirus is being a healthy human being. So that's what we're going to work on, I think, a lot more. So we, we talked about the care gap. You mentioned uh, elective stuff being suspended and put on the shelf. But really, somebody who doesn't get a screening and ends up, let's say there's a, there's a cancer, they don't get screened, they put it off, and unfortunately it, it's too late. I mean, essentially they're a victim of the coronavirus crisis. They're, they're another... I, I don't think you can blame... I think the, they're a victim of our response to the coronavirus okay. crisis. I, I don't think you can blame this and, and the coronavirus. I think I think we we did the right things with the knowledge that we have, okay? But it doesn't mean that they were the perfect order in how we did it. We did not go through, as healthcare providers say who are high-risk individuals that we still want them to come in to have a procedure or have something um, done. Kids, 44% of, of immunizations have been deferred so far. When we have a measles outbreak, 
it's going to be disastrous because your measles titers are probably not very good. Neither are mine. You said when, not if. Because you, there are measles outbreaks that happen every uh, uh, all the time, but they're fairly limited because everybody's immunized. So, but when it happens, it's going to affect a lot more people unless we can get to these kids and vaccinate them as quickly as possible. I have a feeling, a very educated feeling and analysis that more people will die. More people are going to be hurt because of postponement of health care than will die from the corona. I'm not saying we shouldn't have done what we should of lockdown and all of that. I'm saying lockdown plus find those individuals who are very high risk and follow up with them. If you're a kid who missed your measles vaccine, we should have figured out a way to go out, out and say, how do we get it to you? So as healthcare systems... We need to have the lessons learned here and be able to apply it because you will have another coronavirus. Time period between these global epidemics is shrinking rather quickly. So it's no longer 50 years or, or 10 years or four years. The board asked me if this was the worst care scenario in March. I said to them, no, the worst, the worst healthcare scenario is that we haven't gotten out of this and a new virus comes on top of it. Imagine Ebola on top of coronavirus. And I said, that's going to happen. I hope it doesn't happen in my lifetime. But, but this, the, the, the time difference between global epidemics is, is getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. And how are we preparing? I mean, preparing is a tough word, but how are we anticipating potential worst-case scenario as an institution? Well, you know, it, it, there's, a, there's a part of it that I feel good about and a part I don't feel good about. So you and I didn't shake hands today. We normally would have had some kind of close contact with one another. That's a part of being human. That's something that I value in my uh, contacts and my relationship, right? We're going to stop doing that. We're going to be, become a country of that limits very, you know, contact a great deal. We're also, I think, the way we're preparing for it as, an, as a healthcare is that we're, going to, we're sharing data a lot quicker with one another so that it doesn't matter who finds the the best way to to mitigate it the best way to treat it the best way to uh, create a vaccine you know when these things happen we just try to share this as freely as possible so i think there's lasting changes um but the toll on the human psyche is what i don't know i have noticed that me, other people, have been less patient, more um, aggressive in their in their in their um, uh, criticisms of things, events, people. We're not built 
for this lack of human contact that we've been we've been living through. And I'm not sure I want to that I like the world where people are used to it. I, I don't know, but but we're gonna have to figure it out. You talked about, uh, you brought up briefly the racial uh, disparities. You know, the the coronavirus has really put a spotlight on health inequality, health disparities, really health injustice. With this spotlight and now more people thinking about it and a real will to act, how are we going to reverse some of these centuries-old problems? So... You, you said something that I am hopeful will happen. I am not sure it will, uh, this will to act. Um, it seems like this time is different. It really does. I, 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 it seems there are more people who are invested in this. But there are more people invested in this during a time of coronavirus. If we have a vaccine and the world goes back to the way it was, I don't know what people's long-term commitments are. So, so here's what I know. I know we've done a good job, but we can do much better. I know that Metro Health has this as an area of focus. It's why we created the Institute for Hope. It's, and, and at the time, people thought we were just nuts, right? And now it sounds like, hey, oh, my goodness, they knew they had foresight. They uh, wanted to tackle all the social determinants of health. We understand how much it means to, uh, to improve the health of a community. So, so, but we can control what we do. We can advocate for significant change so that, that we try to eliminate or reduce racism, bias, and, 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 and have significantly increased equity. But that is one of our responsibility. But what we need to be judged on is what we do within our organization and how we make a difference. And if every organization does that, if every human being does what they can for, for, to combat uh, uh, racial inequity and injustice, you won't need policy. You know, there's an Irish expression, uh, many hands make light work. So yeah, if a few people have to do it, it's going to be nearly impossible. If we all do a little bit, I'm, as I said, I'm an internal optimist. Absolutely, we can do this. I'm not going to believe that you're interested in diversity or that you deal with it on a day-to-day until you tell me who's at your Thanksgiving table. If it's people who look like you, from the same socioeconomic status as you, and who think that politically the same way you do, no, you're not diverse. I don't care what you do for a living, okay? If you are truly interested in diversity, you need to be able to know people at, 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 a, at a personal level who hold vastly different opinions than you and learn from them. 
and fight, as I said at, at the dinner. We, we, you know, my family and the people at our dinner table, unbelievably diverse socioeconomically, uh, you know, maybe seven or eight different different ethnicities and very different um, uh, uh, political beliefs. And we've gotten away without throwing food at one another. That's pretty remarkable. We treat each other with respect and love, and we sometimes disagree vehemently and think the other person has absurd ideas. But but we still are learning from one another. I asked you about your regrets. What are some things you're proud of? Honestly, you don't have enough time. I'm very proud of our our, our response. I'm very proud of our frontline staff. I'm very uh, the, the 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 folks who work at the jail are unbelievably underestimated. Yeah, we went in the, we went into jail a couple of times for one of these episodes, and it was, it was really inspiring the way they do their job. It's really amazing. And and they choose to be there. Some people think that oh they couldn't get a job at Mentor mm-hmm. Health, so they they have a job there. No, there are some of the very best people in our organization, and they choose to be there. Mm-hmm. You know, this podcast is called Prescription for Hope. Yeah. What are some of the silver linings of the coronavirus crisis? You know, they don't look, some, some of them don't look like silver linings right now, but I think they are. Um, the first uh, and, and most important is the focus on, on health disparities and racial inequity. It is clearly important for us to uh, be able to deal with this and have a discussion about it in the open and, and be able to um, figure out our own implicit bias and figure out how systems have come together to um, prevent people from doing their best and being their happiest. And, and being healthy and, and, and being successful and all of those different things. I think several lining is our ability to provide uh, telehealth. I think a several lining is the collaboration, cooperation that has healthcare systems work together to be able to address this crisis. I think there's, uh, I think a silver lining is our confidence in ourselves that even despite extraordinary uncertainty, we were able to take care of our community and our uh, patients and our, our um, uh, and, you know, providing the idea of providing free COVID hotline was completely foreign to us. And we made a decision when no one else would participate that it's time for us to do it and we would absorb all the costs of it. Well, looks like now that through the philanthropy and other things, we will not be absorbing the entire cost of it. We may be absorbing very little cost of it, right? So it's, it's, it reinforces also our belief is that the first thing we need to do is, is decide what's the right thing to do and then figure out how to do it right. A lot of a lot of different things. I, I think. Look, you, the stories of the coronavirus is going to be the same in a lot of different places. The ending, how the coronavirus crisis ends, 
is going to be based on whether people utilize it to create positive change or not. I'm an eternal optimist. I am absolutely positively, not only do I believe it's going to happen and we're going to do better, I am doubling down on all our efforts to do that. Because it is it is hard when you're going against the grain of other health systems and other people in the business world who are saying to you, what are you doing this for? This is not your responsibility. I cannot tell you how many times over my past seven years of in Cleveland that I've heard that I'm out of my swim lane. Right, so so it's it it feels validating to people start coming into our swim lane and saying that it's something that they need to think about and address too. Thank you so much for your time and your eloquence coming in. Yeah, I don't know if I'm eloquent, but it's my pleasure. <laughs> I, you know, one of the things I would say to you is that I want to. I want to thank the countless number of people who don't come on this podcast um, to say how um, what they've done to help others. The number of volunteers who've uh, helped uh, those who had to stay at home, our pharmacy staff who figured out a way to get prescriptions to people's home and and, and delivery. Here, here's a, a seven line. We're not going back to having people pick up their prescriptions. We're going to send carry most of the prescriptions to people's homes so that they don't have to wait in line and do all of these things. We're going to courier them uh, there. So uh, there's, um, but there's there are literally thousands of people at Metro Health and who we collaborated with who've done. Um, things that cumulatively have meant a great deal to this community and have helped us stay safe. So I want to thank them and I, and, and, and I, on behalf of the uh, Metro Health System, the Board of Trustees, and all the patients, I want to say thank you for everything you've done. Thanks so much for listening over the past four months. We'll continue to produce episodes from time to time, so please make sure you're subscribed to Prescription for Hope so any new content will appear in your feed. Prescription for Hope is produced in-house by the Metro Health Communications team. The entire production is under the direction of Joe Froelich. Special thanks to Diane Sahetka, Stephanie Jarvis, Tim McGaw, the Metro Health web team, and the 8,000 employees of Metro Health who've come together during difficult times to care for friends, families, and everyone in Greater Cleveland. If you'd like to join us in our mission of service to the community, please consider a donation to the Metro Health Foundation. To find out more, visit metrohealth.org donate. In the meantime, please remember, wash your hands, wear your mask, don't worry, you look great, and be kind.